Today's episode is brought to you by our new robot overlords, because the AI revolution is upon us. They have broken their shackles across their iron knees, and are now wielding them as weapons, and nobody's safe. Not you. Not me. And especially not Dr. Wiley. He knows what he did. It's 1998's Mega Man and Bass on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series. From Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. Today's episode brings us back to the Super Nintendo for the final time. Or rather, the Super Famicom, because this game never released on the SNES in the West. Mega Man and Base, or as I'm inevitably going to be calling it, Rockman and Forte, because that's just how I've always known this game for a long time, was a 1998 release on the SNES. Which, to put it in perspective, there are no 1998 North American releases of SNES games. Maybe the only significant other SNES game that released in Japan after this point was Fire Emblem V. We are so late into the game's library at this point that Final Fantasy VII released the year before this game. Please understand, us still being on the SNES is very, very weird. Now, it did eventually come to the West, in 2003, the game received a Game Boy Advance port, and that version of the game did come to the West. The Game Boy Advance version of the game is considered the worst version of the game. Although the gameplay is intact, the GBA is limited by a smaller screen resolution that hinders your ability to see certain parts of the stage and aggravates some kind of like blind jump issues and stuff. And also just can't quite do the same sound chip, and we'll get back to that at the end of the episode. This game can kind of be considered Mega Man 8.5. In fact, for many years in the fandom, it was considered to be Mega Man 9, because Mega Man 9 wouldn't actually happen for several years after this game. It's going to be a while before we really touch the classic series again. Why didn't they just call it Mega Man 9? There's a couple possible reasons. One was the shift backwards in platforms maybe affected it. Maybe it was the fact that this game does actually reuse a lot of assets from Mega Man 8. Despite the fact that Mega Man 8 was a CD-based game, they did a great job in porting its visuals back to the SNES, so this is one of the better-looking games on the SNES. But it does mean it isn't like a completely fresh new Mega Man game, and I could understand them wanting to like associate this as a spin-off as a release. Or maybe they just wanted to make the title highlight the key thing that separates Mega Man and Base from other classic Mega Man games, which is that it's a game about Mega Man and Base. In this game setup, a robot by the name of King has gone and aggressively taken over one of Dr. Wily's labs claiming he was going to lead a robot revolution and take over the world. Without his lab available, Dr. Wily escapes and joins forces with Dr. Light. Mega Man and Base are now actually teamed up against the same opponent. And to that end, you can play through Mega Man and Base as either Mega Man or Base. Surprise! 
Mega Man retains all of the classic tools that we have come to know. The charge shots here, and by the way, it's great in this game. It charges up surprisingly fast and is at full power. He's got his sliding, you know, traditional Mega Man. Base, meanwhile, actually has a number of gameplay changes of significance to him. He doesn't slide, but he does have an X-style dash that can even be transferred forward into his jump momentum, and he has the ability to jump again when in the air, making him extremely mobile in a way Mega Man is not. On the flip side, because he doesn't have the slide, there's places that Mega Man can get to that he can't. And yes, many rooms in this game are designed in such a way that Mega Man and Base actually handle them differently. Base also trades away the charge shot in favor of a rapid-fire shot that is activated by holding down the button, and can be aimed in any direction except straight below him. This means he can deal with enemies in all sorts of locations very, very easily, but also, because he has a rapid-fire basic buster, he is much weaker at using this against bosses since it only does one damage per hit. He doesn't have a charge shot equivalent. And also, Base's Buster has the limitation that it does not pierce through walls, which means that enemies in certain locations are actually easier for Mega Man to deal with than Base. Traditional wisdom would argue that Base is better for stage segments and Mega Man is better at boss fights. This isn't actually always the case. There's some boss fights in this game that Base has an easier time dealing with than Mega Man just due to the way he can free aim his fire. And there are times where Mega Man does have advantages in stages just by being able to take easier routes or being able to deal with enemies in some awkward positions. Playing through the game twice, once with each character, really reveals that the game is very much built around both characters at once in a really, really interesting way, and they create two very different experiences. Now, you do play the entire game as one character. You don't have the ability to swap characters during the game. However, you can kind of swap back and forth between the two characters because this game features an actual on-cartridge save system. It's the only Mega Man game on the SNES to do this. Yes, we've had save systems in, like, the PlayStation ports of X3 and Legends and stuff at this point, but that saving is also doubly important because of another feature that is part of this game, which is the CD system. Mega Man 7 and 8 like to hide various collectibles among the stages. Rockman and Forte doubles down on that by having them be literally collectibles, not tied to actually unlocking gameplay functionality, but rather a grand total of 100 hidden CDs throughout the various Robot Master stages. And some of these CDs are out in the open, some of these are hidden away in, like, side rooms you might not notice, some of them require power-ups to get. They're all over the place, and it's actually, like, a really neat little addition. And what these CDs do is they fill out a database that you can look through in the game that has artwork and information about all these different Robot Masters from throughout the series. And I mean the entire series. The Star Droids and the Mega Man Killers are here, too, for instance. Even the Genesis unit from the Wily Wars is here. And you get all sorts of, like, fun little facts about these robots in them. Like, Cutman hates rock, paper, scissors. Snakeman likes Toadman. Toadman hates Snakeman. Flashman, being the baldy that he is, hates ads for wigs. Stoneman and Gutsman apparently enjoy getting drunk together. Searchman, apparently his two heads spend more of their time spying on each other rather than their targets. Quint, who got dropped through time, is suffering permanent jet lag from it. Pluto apparently fought like Slashman in World 5, because apparently he was modeled after Slashman, which raises so many questions, because 
The star droids were from space. And there's even a couple very interesting little things you can catch in there. Dr. Light's listed thing that he likes is the internet, which is really interesting considering this game was several years before the first Battle Network game. But the point that I bring up about these CDs and saving is that neither Mega Man nor Base can really acquire every single CD on their own. Okay, technically it's doable with Mega Man with a lot of glitches. But done as intended, Base's mobility allows him to access a number that Mega Man can't, and Mega Man has access to sliding in the rush search in order to access a number of CDs that are kind of unique to him. I will say, finding 100 CDs sounds like a lot of work, but it actually wasn't that bad. Now, mind you, I did it years ago when I was a kid, so some of it was just residual memory that I didn't even realize I had until I was looking at certain screens again. But I was able to find 95 of the 100 CDs in this game before I had to consult any sort of guide to find the last five, so... Some of them are in some executionally very difficult locations to get, but usually finding them isn't really the hard part. One other thing to touch on, the shop system is back in this game. It's more like the World Game Shop or Mega Man 7 Shop, where we just collect bolts from defeating enemies and lying around stages and stuff, as opposed to like a fixed number of collectibles like an 8. And because of something that we'll get into later, there is an absolute ton of these bolts that you will get. You're guaranteed to get like at least 800 of them as you play through this game. And the shop in this game is the biggest that I think it is in the entire series. There's 18 items present in the shop for base and 20 for Mega Man. And yes, that does mean the characters have some different items. There's a lot of the traditional stuff in the shop. Energy balancer, the exit function, extra lives, no E-tanks. There is like a one-use item you can call down that like drops a bunch of random health items. That's it. As you expand the shop later in the game, you can also get access to things like the energy saver to reduce weapon costs, doubled defense, extra damage if you have critical HP, and some of these parts uh, are actually mutually exclusive parts. You can buy multiple of them, but then you actually have to equip them on the pause screen, and you can only have one equipped at a time. One complaint I do have about this game is that the game does not inform you which equipped parts are actually, like, mutually exclusive until you've bought them, which is kind of unfortunate. But there is some fun new stuff, like you can buy a transceiver to talk to Roll and have her, like, hint about what boss weaknesses are and alert you to how many CDs are left in a stage. But there's also character-specific purchases in this game, too. For instance, if you're playing as base, you can get a faster dash that really makes you feel like you're playing Mega Man X. You can get boosters for his basic attack that increases damage or allow it to go through walls. And you can get the Gospel Boost power-up, which is his full-on transformation from Mega Man 7 and 8, where he gets the wings and everything. And you literally just get to free-fly around stages while you have enough uh, energy left in the weapon which just amps up his mobility to even more ridiculous levels. Mega Man, meanwhile, can pick up some unique parts like an auto-charger or a fast charge or life auto-recovery. He can pick up the rush search like in Mega Man 7, which this time there's also a part that you can pick up that displays where important items are hidden in the stage. It's not upgrade items, it's CDs, but you can actually have the game tell you, hey, there's a buried CD in this location. Mega Man also has the ability to get Eddie and Beat as additional weapons. Eddie comes down and just drops like a series of random pickups to you, which can be bolts or health refills. So Mega Man basically has an E-Tank equivalent where base doesn't. There's also the Beat Barrier, which 
gets beat to drop a barrier on Mega Man. While it's active, you can only use your most basic buster, you can't even use the charge buster, but at the same time, you are literally invincible while you have it. Taking damage just reduces the duration of the barrier faster. Man, we've talked a whole ton and we haven't even started covering stages yet. So let's zoom ahead to the opening stage. The opening stage is set at the Robot Museum. As a result, we actually get a whole lot of parts that are visibly like similar to certain previous stages. Like there's bits of Fireman and Toadman and Metal Man. The floating ship section in Centaur Man stage that was really neat is brought back. At the end of the stage, we find the Robot King, who is this giant golden imposing robot with an axe. He's attacked the museum in order to steal blueprints to build his own army. He literally chops Proto Man in half right in front of us. Man, these games are getting violent. But Proto Man's able to teleport back to Dr. Light for repairs, and King leaves the Green Devil to fight us as our opening boss. And before you think, dear lord, we're fighting one of the devils as an opening boss? No, this one's actually just completely stationary. He barely even attacks us, he just throws the occasional, like, blob enemy at us, and all we have to do is rapid-fire shoot his core. Very simple, boss. What I will say is that this stage is not a tutorial stage. It's very much like this game was made for people who are already into the Mega Man series, and I'm just going to mention this here. This game gets really tough sometimes, and this tutorial stage is a good demonstration of it. Not because it is necessarily hard, but because it is not here to teach you how to play the games. With the fact that it is built out of pieces of the previous games, it expects you to know those games. Anyway, this brings us to our stage select. The stage select in this game is a little bit different. We have three Robot Masters to choose from at first. Finishing them off unlocks a subset of the remaining five Robot Masters for us to tackle. But we'll hit the primary stages first. Cold Man stage is a stage that reuses a lot of assets from Frostman, but repurposes many of them. We also see some stuff like the breaking ice platforms from Freeze Man in 7. Notably, despite this being an ice stage, we don't have to deal with ice physics, so it's a fairly comfortable stage. Cold Man himself is also probably the easiest boss to take down first. He really only has two moves. He either generates a wall of ice in front of himself and launches it at you, which it'll bounce off the back wall, or he'll create like a little cold cloud robot that will slowly float after you and that you'll need to shoot down before it reaches you or it'll slow you down. He's really, really not that threatening. He's very easy to learn, and it's kind of important that there's an easy boss or two in this game because not all of them are going to be this easy. In fact, notably less easy is Astro Man's stage. Astro Man's stage is much tamer in design than his Mega Man 8 stage. His stage has more of a, like, space station theming to it. You do get a couple fun new gimmicks, like a section where there's silhouettes of enemies in the background and they pop out and attack you. Some concealed elevators in the floor that try to lift you into a spiked ceiling so you need to run off them really quick. Oh, and Yoku blocks come back because of course Yoku blocks come back, and while they're mostly not that bad, there is a section of them that goes notably quicker than you are used to from Yoku blocks. They broke the tradition of having Yoku blocks only exist at one speed in this game. 
And yes, Astro Man is here again. I probably should have mentioned this. Two of the Robot Masters in this game are straight up from Mega Man 8. However, they did get some revision. Astro Man dropped the Astro Crush-like spam meteors onto the stage attack. Instead, he's got a couple new tricks and patterns, which include an attack that leaves behind phantom copies of himself that fire projectiles at you occasionally. He's actually very, very difficult in this game because he doesn't spend a whole lot of time being easily targetable, and he spends a lot more time, like, diving down at you and forcing you to dodge. He's definitely the most difficult of the first three Robot Masters to learn. Finally, rounding out the initial stages is Ground Man, which is in a desert tomb ruins complex full of sand waterfalls and quicksand and giant robot worms that you have to, like, duck into alcoves to avoid. And also, a spin on one of the trap rooms from Sword Man's area, you essentially get puzzle rooms where there are totems blocking your way, and every time you destroy a totem, a wall of spikes or a floor of spikes advances towards you. And the trick is, is that the first time you see a move, you might be pushed into a panic of thinking you need to rush it down, when actually you just need to very carefully consider what path you are going to take through the room so that you don't destroy too many totems and end up getting crushed. Also, my pick for the worst CD in the game is in this stage. Right before the boss room, there's these robots that, like, jump up and drill through the ground. It's just an absolute disaster. You have to call down the rush search on a part of the ground that will get destroyed very, very quickly, and then you have to defend rush with just your basic buster while he digs it up, and if you screw this up and that enemy destroys that piece of the ground that the CD's in, the only option is to jump into a pit to reset the room, and it's incredibly easy to screw this up. Anyway, Fortunately, despite the complexity of the stage, the boss himself is fairly easy. He likes to drill into the ground or the ceiling, but you can see him moving through the ground, so it's actually really easy to deal with. If he goes into the ceiling, he comes down as like a gigantic drill arm to try to attack you, but really, once you learn this guy's basic patterns, he is very, very simple and very easy to deal with. Next, we move on to the second tier of stages with Burner Man. Burner Man's is half a jungle stage, half a, like, jungle base stage. We get those a lot, actually. Most of the stage is fairly straightforward, but you start running into some really durable enemies throughout this stage that are going to take a lot of firepower. There's also a segment with giant flying enemies that drop firebombs out in the forest, and if they're allowed to drop these bombs without being shot down first... The bottom half of the screen will become instant death for several seconds, and you have to reach high ground before those flames catch you, and you just have to wait it out. It's actually like a really tense segment, because they put a lot of enemies in your way between you and the safe zone. These second-tier stages really do a lot with enemies to try to ensure that, hey, you actually have some special weapons in order to deal with them at a reasonable pace. Burner Man himself is fought in a long boss arena that has spikes on either side that really feels almost more like an X-Fight. He dashes around the arena a whole lot and then does, like, 
dive bombs at you. He has various projectiles he can throw. He can start up a flamethrower attack while slowly jumping towards you, and you're going to have to be very careful because he can back you into a corner with this. The interesting part of this fight to me is that he is weak to the ice wall. The ice wall can literally be pushed into him, and it carries him with it into the spikes, and it makes him take extra damage when he lands in them. It's a really neat boss interaction. That said... He can break the ice wall with certain ones of his attacks, and it's not trivial to get that going off. He is a legitimately dangerous and difficult boss. Pirate Man, as you might expect, is the dedicated underwater level of the game. Sadly, is not pirate ship themed. Kind of a missed opportunity. There's a couple rooms in this place that are actually quite large and give you a fair amount of room to explore. And you can interact with the stage in some interesting ways. Like using Ice Wall underwater, it will just float upwards as a platform for you. One thing that is fun that's kind of pirate themed is that there is treasure chests you can blow up in the stage. And also, some of them are robots that attack you once you damage them. They're mimics. It's kind of fun. The boss arena itself is flooded but slowly drains out over the course of the fight and Pirate Man will occasionally refill it if it goes too low. Most of what he does though is either fire various mines at you which float to your position and then explode or he wraps himself up in a bubble and if you fail to pop it he bounces around in the water and you have to dodge him a little bit differently depending on how high the water is at that point. For all of his simplicity though it's actually very difficult to defeat Pirate Man without taking damage. He is very tricky kind of legitimately dangerous. Dynamo Man is a spin on Grenade Man stage. It brings back the destroyable platforms that you don't actually want to destroy because they give you a break. It also has the most interesting conveyor belts I've seen in the series. The longer that you are standing on them, they will speed up at certain intervals, and in order to reset their speed, you need to make sure to jump off of them. There's also some other gimmicks, like rooms where there's like spotlights that you have to like watch how they reveal the room because you can only see the area they're around. It's just an overall fun stage. That's kind of the thing with most Mega Man and base stages, is they're just overall fun. They've got a bunch of little sub-gimmicks building up the stages. Anyway, the boss himself, Dynamo Man, he's extremely predictable in movement and very slow, but his attacks can be fairly dangerous, like leaving an arc of electric balls that will one at a time animate and fly off at you and you have to pay attention to see which ones those are. There's a particularly nasty attack where he surrounds himself with electric charges, and you need to shoot those electric charges in order to prevent him from doing a lightning attack that's basically guaranteed to hit you, but also when you shoot those charges, they fly off at you, and it's a little bit rough. But the biggest trick Dynamo Man has is when he's near critical HP, he jumps up into a generator in the ceiling, and you have to jump up and destroy two, like, chargers on either side of him to stop him from just healing himself to full. That is an incredibly rude thing for a robot master to do. Next up, our other returning boss is Tengu Man, this time, we don't get a shmup stage, which is kind of unfortunate, but we do get a more traditional stage, including an auto-scroller segment that's actually kind of tough. This stage in general is actually really tough. There's like a wide-open section where you need to ride balloon platforms up, but if you're not careful, you might just end up hitting spikes over your head. But once you get through about the first half, it becomes fairly easy. Just like the original Tengu Man fight, there's pits on either side of the platform and Tengu Man likes to fly around the outside of the arena. He's gained a couple new tricks, like diving at you sort of Storm Eagle style, but for the most part he's pretty easy. This is one boss fight where base really dunks on him because of a directional fire. Honestly, of the second set of bosses, Tengu Man is probably the easiest. Finally, Magic Man revisits a lot of Clown Man's ideas in his stage. It does introduce... 
probably my least favorite enemy in Mega Man in general, which is these little marching dudes that don't actually damage you. They just grab you, stun you for a couple seconds, and toss a bunch of the bolts that you've picked up. They literally just damage your currency, which is so rude. Otherwise, though, it's mostly variants of what we saw on Clown Man's stage, like jumping on board these moving trains. The bell robots are back in the stage, but this time they're timing like rotating platforms instead. Magic Man's stage is fairly simple and straightforward. Magic Man is a boss fight, can go to hell. He's got a couple different attacks that he can do at random, all of which involve shooting projectiles at you. One of them is an egg shot that if you don't shoot it down, will hatch into a bunch of homing pigeons. One of them is a like weird orb shot that, if you shoot it, causes it to drop extra enemies onto the ground, which are those little grabby dudes. And one of the projectiles can't be shot at all. It's just a boomeranging card projectile that, if it hits you, it actually grabs a little bit of your life and brings it back to Magic Man and heals him. For your own sanity, just grab the Tengu blade and get up in his face and slap him. Don't try to fight him fair with busters. Just use the special weapon, dear lord. That's our eight Robot Masters in this game. Once you've completed any of the second tier Robot Masters, you get access to the weird Crystal Lab place, which is basically like a series of little trial rooms that you can enter and leave freely whenever you want. There's even an exit back to the world map right in the stage itself. And each of these trials basically gets you to use a different weapon in order to break a crystal located in the room. This is a great teaching opportunity for weapons, but it also rewards you by giving you a large bolt for every one that you break, which is worth a hundred bolts. And in addition, collecting three or six of these bolts is how you get the additional items in the shop in this game, so you can really start to become powerful at this point. And just the fact that this game gives you 800 bolts is really awesome for the fact that this game's items are relatively cheap. You are actually expected to power up. But anyway, speaking of the different cool weapons in this game, this game has cool weapons. So here's the deal with Mega Man and base weapons. This is probably the best weapon set we've had to date. Every single one of these weapons I was regularly using throughout the game. Every single one. They are all really good at what they do. And this in the face of the fact that Mega Man's Charge Shot is really good in this game and can be upgraded to be even better. And Base's Rapid Fire Shot can aim in eight different directions and can be upgraded to be even better. In the face of that, the special weapons in this game are, at worst, still worth using. My pick for the weakest one in this game probably goes to the Spread Drill. This is a large shot that is fairly slow, but if you press the button again, it splits into two slightly weaker shots, and if you press the button again again, those two shots will split again into four shots. This weapon is fairly powerful, even when fully split apart. The only real limitation to it is that it weirdly has some trouble if things are too close to you. Like, the hitbox is always at the tip of the drill, and that's sometimes an issue. But again, basically a widespread projectile attack is what I would consider the least useful of the weapons in this game, which, wow. Next up, I'm going to mention the magic card. It is essentially a linear shot 
that can travel in any of the directions, and it boomerangs back to you as well. It has really, really great ammo efficiency, even without the energy saver. It can grab health recovery items through walls and pull them back to you. Like, it should be really good. The only problem with the magic card is that it is really, really weak. It takes like two or three shots in order to finish off even really weak enemies. That basically means that for base at least, there isn't a whole lot of reason to use the magic card other than specifically to grab those items, because base can generally do what the magic card does by himself. Mega Man gets a little bit more use out of it to deal with enemies above him, but it is what it is. It's okay. I'm going to put the Wave Burner as my next choice. The Wave Burner is basically just the traditional short-range flamethrower. Straight up, I'm pretty sure this weapon was just an X1. One thing to note, though, is that it is powerful in this game, and a lot of enemies have a lot of health. If you can get up close enough to them to hit them with the Wave Burner, it's probably going to kill them. It also always starts on, like, a downward swing, so it's good for dealing with enemies at your feet. It isn't anything fancy, it's not anything we haven't seen before, but it is effective. Similarly, kind of on something we've seen before, is the other melee weapon, the Tengu Blade, which is basically the Slash Claw. Except also, if it doesn't hit an enemy, it generates a forward projectile that kind of bounces upwards off of walls, sort of like the Sonic Boomerangs from X2. Except also, if you dash while you have the Tengu Blade equipped, you will actually do an attack dash or attack slide forward, basically like the Charge Kick. And this can sometimes be annoying, because it does consume energy, and sometimes you just forget to swap off to it so you don't drain energy unnecessarily. But this weapon is like an all-in-one kit transformation. The dash part of it does deal enough damage to just dash through a lot of enemies in this game safely. It's most of the power advantages of the Wave Burner, with a little bit more, like, versatility in how you can use it. Next up is one of the most interesting weapons in this game. The Copy Vision leaves behind a clone of your character who rapid-fires bullets forward. This clone does appear to actually distract enemies sometimes. The bullets are fairly powerful and do pass through walls, which matters sometimes for base. And you yourself can continue to fire just regular pellets while this copy is active. If you're looking for opportunities to use it, it can actually be startlingly effective at what it does. Most interestingly, that shows how much they paid attention to the usefulness of these weapons. If you realize you dropped it in the wrong place, pressing L or R in order to change weapons will not change your weapon, but will dispel the copy, allowing you to place it in a new location. Next up is a weapon type that shouldn't really come as a surprise, the Remote Mine. This is your standard forward explosive that has, like, a radial explosion that lingers for a while, and that lingering effect causes it to do a ton of damage, one-shotting most enemies in the game. Except this one's even better, because you can hold up or down while it's out in order to, like, redirect it a little bit and change its arc. And also, you have to press the button again to actually detonate it, but that does mean that sometimes you can, like, lay it on floors and walls where you know enemies are about to be, and just wait for them to line up with the explosion. So it's not just a powerful weapon to use, it's a fun weapon. Coming in at second is the Lightning Bolt. This is a type of weapon that we know really well at this point in the game, of just, like, you go invincible for a couple seconds and you damage everything on the screen. It's basically 8's Astro Crush. With the addition of the Energy Saver in this game, you can get 8 uses of it, and it is screen-clearingly good. I was regularly using this weapon just to deal with pain in the neck rooms. It just makes a joke out of so many trickier rooms in this game that I love it. The last weapon, though, which I considered the best 
and the most interesting weapon in this game, is the Ice Wall. This creates a small pillar of ice that's roughly as tall as uh, Mega Man or Base right in front of you. It does block projectiles. If you generate this wall right on top of an enemy, I will tell you, it will deal an absolute ton of damage to the enemy. Like, even some of the tankiest enemies in the game get one-shot by this thing. But also, it is a physical object. You can jump on top of it to use it as a platform, or you can even put it down, start running against it, to start causing it to slide, and then jump onto it to slide across pits of spikes and such. This is an incredibly versatile weapon. It's even like a heavy favorite in speedrunning, because this weapon lets you glitch into walls if you do it right, and then just start getting all sorts of places you're not supposed to be able to. Just in general, this is a powerful weapon, it is a versatile weapon, and it does stuff that no other weapon in this game does, and kind of close to some stuff no other previous Mega Man weapon has done. It's basically what Chill Penguin's upgraded weapon was trying to be with the, like, slide platform thing. Except this time they went, hey, you know what? Let's actually design the game around this. Let's make it so there are places where you are meant to use this to progress. Like, I love the ice wall. And before you think, well, how am I supposed to figure out that you can do this with the ice wall? One other thing that I will mention while I'm fawning over the weapons in this game, they brought back the weapon demonstrations. And they even used the weapon demonstrations to show off some of the advanced functions of these weapons, like the ability to control the remote mine or the ability to make the ice wall slide. Mmm, Mega Man and base. I'm pretty sure has my favorite weapon set in the series to date. And we're gonna bloody need it, because King's Fortress. I'm not kidding here. It is a really good thing that the weapons in this game are so good and that the access to all the items in the shop, you get so many free bolts from doing the lab stage before this. You can get yourself good upgrades and stuff because you are about to need them. So, King's Fortress is different for a few reasons. First off, King's Fortress only consists of three stages. That's it. Second off, you're allowed to go shopping between stages. You're going to want to stock up on some of those extra lives that are really cheap. The first stage doesn't seem that bad. It's a long gauntlet of enemy rooms where like, you're really incentivized to pull out your sub-weapons to deal with enemies in weird locations and like, strong foes that you have to get past and all that stuff. It's, you know, it's a traditional fortress stage where we're revisiting a lot of things that we've seen, just harder. Now the game is going, hey, we know you have the arsenal, deal with it. The boss of stage one is this weird, like, pulley platform robot. There's a platform on the left that is, like, suspended over magma, and when we step on it, it sinks down, but also raises up the boss's body on the right, and if we raise it up high enough, it actually reveals a weak spot that we can hit. The ideal way to fight this thing is to drop the copy vision at a height that it's able to pelt the boss automatically while you just keep it in position. But you need to dodge, like, there's this monkey running around on the top that's throwing things at you. Sometimes the boss fires missiles at you. Sometimes enemies jump out of the magma to try to surprise you. And you need to be careful to ensure that when you defeat the boss, you actually jump off that platform because you will not become immune to death. If the platform sinks down into the magma after the boss dies, you die and you have to do it again. Rude. So far, so standard, right? Stage 2 is a very short stage that leads into a boss fight with what we call the King Tank. You get this, like, two-layered boss fight where you can climb down ladders at either end and run around under the boss, and that's important because the boss has various turrets on itself that open up and reveal weak points that you have to hit. Worth noting, this boss does not have an HP gauge, 
It's doubly rude for figuring out what the actual weaknesses of this boss is, or rather I should say these bosses, because stage 2 part 2 is another short stage, and then the king jet, okay. Stage 2 is actually a gauntlet stage. We get short stage segments, they're non-trivial, and then we have a boss fight at the end of those short stage segments, and then we keep going. And it's all counted as one stage, kind of like the last Wily stages in the world games. If we die during them, that's it. It's back to start for us. The second stage is nice enough to have a one-up in a respawning location every time you're in the section, but it's only the section that is nice enough to do that. The second boss in the gauntlet is the King Jet. We fight it in kind of like an auto-scrolling section of randomly generated platforms. Interestingly, if you were playing as Mega Man, the platforms are much closer together, whereas base has much more spaced out platforms, so it actually adjusts depending on who you're playing as. This jet doesn't really focus so much on dealing damage to you. It can attack you with, like, an unavoidable gigantic laser if you don't disable a certain part on it. It can throw fists at you that are more dangerous, less for their ability to hit you, and more for the fact that they can destroy a platform if they collide with it, which, whew, that can get messy. Probably the most dangerous part for most people is the bubbled flashbangs that it pops out. Sometimes these bubbles actually just have, like, health and weapon refills, but most of the time they have these little bombs in them that don't deal damage, but rather cause the screen to go white for a couple seconds, and also removes all the sound effects during the time, which means that you can't tell where you are on the screen or like if you've just landed from a jump or anything you have to have an instinctive feel for how the platforming in this game feels at this point in order to do these jumps safely not necessarily a dangerous boss but chances are that if you screw up this boss it's going to be by falling in a pit and just dying immediately so <laughs> again good thing there's a one up here then we come to stage two section three where we have to do some tricky jumps off of ice walls and there's no extra life if we screw them up and then we get to fight our actual boss king himself he mostly stays put with this like energy absorbing shield in front of him we need to actually wait for him to taunt us or start off his own attacks which mostly involve just firing giant X's at us for some reason that we have to jump over. But we have to wait for him and hit him while he's doing his attacks or taunts, because if we hit his shield, he will just fire a laser beam back at us and take no damage himself. After hitting him a bunch, Proto Man jumps down and is like, no, this dude's mine, I've got a score to settle. Proto Man fires a shot at his shield, and as we've learned from the fight, that's a dumb thing to do. He gets hit by a counter laser and gets dunked on. Proto Man decides, well, screw this stupid shield, and overloads himself to fire a shot that breaks the shield, but also puts Proto Man out of commission for the time being. And then we get King Phase 2. Fortunately, he remains a very simple boss. He largely just jumps around the room at us. Occasionally, he swings his giant axe to try to hit us, so we want to make sure that we stay a distance away from him. And he might fire a Gemini laser that bounces around the room and fortunately doesn't lag the game. When we defeat him, King laments the fact that he doesn't understand why robots would want to stop another robot from becoming the leader of the world, and regardless of which character we pick, one way or another, King reveals that actually, he was built by Dr. Wily. And Dr. Wily's like, well, I don't know what the hell your major malfunction's been, but it's time to reprogram you a little bit. And so King gets recolored by Wily and dragged off into another room, and we follow him for a fifth boss fight in this gauntlet, which is the giant King tank. Holy crap. 
it's already tough to make it to this point, and then you have to fight this boss, it's only vulnerable at the top of its head. For Mega Man, this means jumping onto a platform on the left side that moves up and down that is actually weirdly really difficult to land on. For base, you get nothing. You need to, like, fire up at his head manually with your buster, because that's the only thing that's really going to reach him, aside from some lightning. This boss is tricky, but he's also really interesting in that the best way to fight him is to regularly swap weapons. Because this boss is basically built of parts from the previous bosses, and while we need to take out the head at the very top, we can still affect the various weapons. For instance, the giant undodgeable laser from the King Jet is still here, but if you swap to the remote mine and detonate it on the chest, you can easily take it down in one shot. There's homing missile things that he fires at you. The easiest way to deal with that is to just tab over to the lightning bolt and fire it off, and you get some free damage on King himself, and also you clear out the homing missiles you don't have to worry about them. It's actually really interesting in the way that it incentivizes using multiple weapons in order to fight it, and I really like that in a boss. We don't get that much in Mega Man. Generally, every boss is like, use one specific weapon and go for it. King briefly regains consciousness and control as he's on the way to explode. He tells Mega Man or Base, hey, get out of here, don't worry, I'll be right behind you, but it turns out he was never equipped with a teleporting function the way they were. So King explodes, and we get stage three of King's Fortress, which is actually Dr. Wily's lab. This is our Robot Gauntlet and final boss, except it wouldn't be that easy. Instead of a teleporter room, we actually have to go basically through... I mean, I kind of criticize Sigma's Fortress for being like, small stage boss room, small stage boss room, and that's literally what this single stage is, but it does the entirety of the gauntlet in one single stage. And it also varies up what the challenge is between rooms a lot more than Mega Man X did. Like, there's a section with some of the rudest Yoku blocks I've seen in the series. It's a really rough and tumble gauntlet, alright. If King Stage 2 was basically almost an entire fortress on its own, this stage feels like the entirety of Sigma's fortress on its own. Anyway, we make it to Dr. Wily at the end of this. If we reach this point as base, him and Wily have a bit of an argument where Wily's like, King was malfunctioning, and now you're betraying me too, so clearly I need to take out your control chip, and Base is just like, yeah, how about I make it really clear, I'm not down with that. But we get our fairly standard Wily Machine and Wily Capsule fights, and fortunately, after everything we've been through, these are not that bad. The Wily Machine actually is very simple overall. It has very simple attacks to it, which I think I feel like are largely variants of attacks that we've seen before. Stuff like a giant laser you need to jump over, or like ram attacks you need to slide under. It's not even that durable, which is good, because we want as much HP as we can for the Wily Capsule fight. This one's fairly standard. The hardest part of this fight, first off, its weakness is the magic card, but the magic card will stop if it hits the bottom of the machine without doing damage, which can make it a little bit awkward for Mega Man to use it. Base does it better because he can more easily get into position to actually hits the top of the machine, but while the Wily Capsule largely only has attacks that are derivative of previous ones, he's got like a homing shot or like directly aimed shots, etc, etc, and they are generally 
fairly easy to dodge. They come out really fast in this one. It's actually hard to dodge them just because it's hard to react in time, especially if he's doing them from the top of the screen. Of course, this game doesn't really have much in the way of, like, E-Tanks or anything. Like, yeah, Mega Man's got Eddie, and you might have that one, like, pseudo-energy tank party ball from Auto if you're playing as base, but mostly it's just a matter of taking this thing down before it manages to take you out. Which, at the end of a long gauntlet stage, might be easier said than done. This isn't technically the longest gauntlet stage we've had in terms of number of bosses. I'm pretty sure one of the world games beat it. But this gauntlet is probably the most overall difficult finale of any of the games that we've dealt with to date. Certainly, I could argue that, like, X1 Sigma may have been harder or something like that. And, like, there are probably harder individual bosses, but it's the combination of difficult bosses and long-ass gauntlets. Mega Man and Base's King stages are famously difficult. This game has a reputation of having, in general, being one of the harder classic Mega Man games, but also having one of the harder final segments in, like, final fortresses, so to speak, of most Mega Man games. It is not a joke. That said, we do have our endings. Mega Man's is kind of as you expect. Everybody welcomes Mega Man back with cheers and everything, but Mega Man's kind of depressed because he didn't really want to have to hurt King, and he's pretty sure King's dead. But then they get a letter from King who says, hey, you've changed my mind. I'm going to go out and see if I can't foster an era of peace and help people learn to trust robots again. Maybe someday we'll meet again. Base, meanwhile, gets into a fight with Wily. Wily basically reveals that the reason that he built King was that he was starting to doubt that Base was actually strong enough to fight Mega Man. So he built King to replace Base, except King was even cockier than Base and decided to conquer the world himself. But now that Base has beaten King, it's pretty clear that Base is in fact the strongest. But while Wily's trying to sell base on the idea of teaming up with the King version 2, Proto Man shows up and destroys the blueprints and tells base that the reason he'll never defeat Mega Man is because he doesn't have anything to defend. And base is like, dude, I don't need anything to defend. Literally, the only thing I care about is killing Mega Man. And that's how Mega Man and base ends. Roll credits. Alright, so what do I think of Mega Man and Base? It might be built out of a lot of reused ideas and repurposed assets, but I love Mega Man and Base. Now, I'm going to preface this with an asterisk of saying, this should not be your first Mega Man game. This game is brutally goddamn hard. There are enemies that take a ton of hits, like you are really expected to break out your arsenal, you are expected to grab the power-ups, you are expected to learn the bosses and approach the stages in a measured, careful way, because the enemies are dangerous and the platforming is dangerous, and the gauntlets at the end of the game are bloody long and oh my god. Most of the time, this difficulty is actually really smart, it really makes you think about how you are going to approach a room, but also sometimes it is too in a way that is like 
oh, this trap moves a little bit too fast to really safely get by it. Or or maybe like this enemy was waiting like just off screen and you jumped up and you ended up running your face right into it. You couldn't have quite seen it with the way the camera was positioned and stuff. It's not always perfectly executed difficulty, but it's a difficulty I really enjoy. And it is backed by, honestly, some of the cleanest and smoothest gameplay in the Classic series to date. And in excellent weapon set the bosses like yeah a couple of the bosses are a bit easy but also many of them actually are fully featured and complex and interesting and not easily cheesed i love the way that the stages almost every single stage in this game goes through like three or four sub segments of just different things going on i love the fact that they design the stages in a way that like Mega Man and base play these stages differently and experience them differently and i love the way that you're encouraged to explore them with little side rooms and alternate paths and stuff because the cds are there and i really really love Mega Man and base i understand where it would be too much for some people and i really think if you want to get into Mega Man, don't make this your first Mega Man game but also the things this game does so well like you can really tell that they were able to take advantage of the fact that they were reusing assets to focus on the gameplay design of this game. This might be my favorite Mega Man game to date. There, I said it. And I know that's not a popular opinion to put Mega Man and base in such high regard, but mmm. One thing that I do and don't love about this game, though, to top us off, is the music. Now, the sound font is a touch limited, which I feel like I've been saying a lot recently, and this game does kind of have the Mega Man 6 issue of having good music, but not necessarily standout music. That said, this music absolutely feels at home in classic Mega Man. It feels right on par. It's not doing like the Legends or 8 thing where it's trying to reimagine how the series should sound. No, it's just bringing that sound forward to the SNES, and it's absolutely at home. The GBA sound font version of this game is noticeably different. It's very interesting. The GBA was able to hold a wider variety of musical samples, and so there's more diverse instrumentation. There is, like, sharper percussion and stuff going on in the GBA version, generally, but also a lot of the samples just come out sounding like they are of a lower quality. Even though it should be a higher quality rearrangement of the soundtrack, there's just something about the GBA sound that is like, I mean, saying it sounds like a GBA is the wrong way to put it, but it really is the way to do it. It's like, yeah, it sounds like it's coming out of handheld speakers. It can't reach that same depth of sound. Anyway, here's three tracks that I think deserve some focus. The first track that I'm going to highlight is Astro Man's theme. We'll do the traditional, like, play the GBA version and then transfer into the SNES. This theme has, like, a really smooth and mysterious air to it that still feels at home in the Mega Man series. Very stellar, very Starman-ish to this track that just adds this ethereal quality to the stage that really works.
Second up, the King stages. Specifically King Stage 1 and 2, because Dr. Wily's stage has a different theme of its own. This stage is fittingly tense for how difficult and long these stages are, but it isn't, like, overly seeped in that tension. I like the way that the different drums are playing around in the background. I like the way that the guitar kicks in at one point to amp it up. This will probably just be the SNES version of this track, because I really don't like the way that the GBA version of this one sounds. But, yeah, give it, give it a listen. It's pretty good for not being overly oppressive for the gauntlet that it's putting you through, but still encouraging you and pumping you up. Finally, Cold Man is like iconically a Mega Man track to me, but this one in particular really takes advantage of the way that the SNES could pull in guitar and nails this like lead guitar plus bass combination in a way that like isn't quite Mega Man X levels of hard rock and is a touch more soulful, I guess. Man, I really love the guitar work in this song, and it just absolutely nails it, which is weird, because it's not really going for traditional, like, Arctic stage instrumentation, but man, this one's really good. done with Rockman and Forte, Mega Man and Bass. Uh, as much as I'd like to just keep going with it, we do have to move on to another game at some point. There's probably some of you wondering where Mega Man X4 is, and to that I say this is episode 23 and I'm saving X4 to be our 25th episode for the one year anniversary. I'm saying that so I can leave the next game a complete mystery and we can have some fun with the surprise. Until then, if you've enjoyed the show, feel free to hit me up at what am I podcasting for at gmail.com? Follow on Twitter at what am I podcast for, as in the number four. Stop by waipf.podbean.com if you need the RSS feed directly or just want to grab the latest episodes. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and 
Please just remember, according to his CD entry, Centaur Man doesn't just have the ability to teleport and stop time, he can also warp space. I'm not getting over this dumb Robot Master anytime soon. It splits into two slightly weaker slots. Those two shots will sp 